Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Murder, a.k.a. Lee Meller. Uh, Lee Meller is a friend of the podcast. He's been on before. He's a criminologist, uh, podcaster, the author of a number of best-selling books on Canadian serial killers and spree killers, uh, all-around fascinating guy uh, who's got a lot of new things cooking at the moment. Uh, welcome, Lee, or Dr. Murder. <laughs> should, I, should I call you Lee or Dr. Murder now? It's like the Holy Trinity, dude. I'm oh yeah, you are. You are all those different things. Different dimensions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm now multidimensional. Yeah. I think I'm going to pretend like go with like an Eminem or Madonna thing. I think I'm going to call you Doctor Murder. It's uh, that's all good. That's kind of fantastic. So, um, I you know I, so many things to talk to you about. I, I mean, obviously you've got these really interesting things coming, but before we get to that, I just I I've been down a rabbit hole for. The last week on Jim Jones, and of course I've been you know, writing lots of notes on this. And uh, there's, have you ever heard of this podcast called uh, Martyr Made Podcast? No, I don't. I yeah, heard it's. Of that. No. Uh, I I found out about it through you know that guy like uh, it's another podcast History on Fire with oh yeah uh, Daniel Arreya, and he always like talks about this. You know, one of his favorite podcasts next to his favorite one is, of course, Dan Brown, uh, Hardcore History. But his, he always says his second favorite podcast is uh, Martyr Made Podcast. So I've been meaning to get around to listening to it for a long time. I finally did um, a few months ago, and it's just fantastic. I mean, his first couple episodes or six episodes are all about kind of the origins of the um kind of Arab-Israeli conflict and all that, and just going deep, like a deep, deep dive into the kind of the, the history of all that. And it's just, it's just so, so well done. And it's amazing because it's, it's one of these things where I've, <laughs> I've had Palestinian friends who've recommended it and Israelis who've recommended it, which is very rare. You know that you on, you know something so contentious, and both have said, "Wow, this shit is good, and it's really, really fair." 
Uh, anyway, so I've listened to a whole bunch of his podcasts, but his most recent series is all on Jim Jones and the People's Temple. And kind of, uh, and so he's had three episodes so far, which I've listened to. And I listened to those and I got just totally fired up and interested in kind of revisiting all of that. Um, and one of the books he mentions on the podcast is he says, oh, this is like the best book. And it's this book called Raven, um, mm-hmm. the untold history of Jim Jones and his people. And um, I'm about, I'd say, like three quarters of the way through the book. And it's just blowing my mind. But all the way through the book, uh, I kept been writing down. I was like, oh, got to ask Lee about this. Got to ask Lee about this. <laughs> but I mean, one of the first things that just blew me away about the book is that I had no, I, you probably knew this already, but I had no idea that Jim Jones was like a hardcore social justice activist. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you and that that? He, was, he even he like was a commie he, dude. Basically, he was like, uh, very close. He just he made his his whole kind of career and all of his reputation as being like against every kind of all oppression. He was fighting for civil rights in the 1950s and 60s. Like even you know even before it was like cool, so to speak. I mean, he was doing it like really early on, and he was fighting against. A, and he even wanted to call his church the Church of Social Justice. Like he, it's just absolutely mind blowing. And just seeing how things kind of spiraled out of control, and like the the constant, constant uh, berating. On the one hand, kind of bringing in lots of kind of educated white liberals into the organization but then constantly berating them for being privileged and for like you you need to you know shut up and you need to like and having this constant sort of weird like sort of oppression olympics like within the people's temple and then and jim jones sort of even though he was like a white guy using this as like a a way to just like beat people down and kind of humiliate people. And it, it's just very, very eerie. Like the similarities between, you know, some things that we see happening now and, and then, but uh, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, on Jim? I think you've got it right. When we first talked, we were talking about more, you kind of surprised me. You said, what do you think of say people that kill for the state? Rather than, you know, you said you could understand a psychopath, but you couldn't understand these people that kill for the state. So this seems to be a interest of yours that keeps popping up. Now we're looking at Jim, who is, in I think, in many ways, uh, psychologically similar to any authoritarian, totalitarian leader, you know, like a Hitler, a Stalin, Mussolini, any of those guys. At the end of the day, it's going to sound very trite, but there's a reason sometimes that things become cliches, it's because they continue to be true. It's that it doesn't really matter the sort of flavor your authoritarianism has or your totalitarianism has. At the end of the day, you're either an authoritarian or totalitarian or you're not. And that can happen at a state level or it can happen within other institutions or group settings, tribal settings. And here we have it just exercising it Uh, sorry, just manifesting within the people's temple. And Jim Jones is the charismatic leader. And yeah, so my thought about it is he's like every other 
totalitarian dictator. He's probably completely unable to accept risk in all aspects of his life, uh, financial bonding with other people. And this is sort of an Eric Fromm idea, which is there's a bit of irony in there. But this idea of people that are unable to accept risk uh, strive to control pathologically. And that's what I would first start out by saying about Jim Jones is this is a guy who can't just say, you know what, I'm going to form relationships with people. They're going to luck up to me. But sooner or later, many of them or all of them or some of them are going to leave. And that's just the way life is. Relationships are dynamic. They change. No, he can't accept that because he has what Frome would have called a necrophilus personality. And yes, something like necrophilia or sadism is along that scale, but it, it doesn't need to be. It can just be about exercising control over, you know, you know of somebody who's gone errant by murdering them or by physically restraining them. So that would be my first little brush on Jim Jones's character. Yeah. Well, it, what's interesting in the the podcast, yeah, Daryl Cooper's take on him in um, uh, Martyr Made podcast is he he calls the series on Jim Jones God's Socialist, uh, which is just a fantastic name. Um, but he is that he he very much makes the case that this guy is not a sociopath. In fact, he starts off. Um, from a young age, in his teen years, he starts off as being just this uh, incredibly, incredibly empathetic, sweet person who has like these, uh, like he works as a, in his teen years, he was working, late teens, he was working as an orderly in a hospital. And he gained a reputation in the hospital as being just this, almost like a saintly type person. Like he would do things like, you know, changing bedpans and helping, like, putting, you know, stuff, ointment on, like, bed sores for old people. And and people, you know, in those situations, they are very often treated with disgust. And they're treated not, they're treated like, like things or like animals and not well. And he would talk to people and he would look them right in the eyes and he would actually like really, really connect with them and treat them with a kind of dignity. And so he very quickly in his, you know, as a teenager, he had this like following, like people just really were attracted to him. And, and because he had like so much love in him and he had a reputation for also just being incredibly good with animals. Like he would have, when he was a little kid, it was almost like, like a saint or something like you would have like a a whole bunch of like dogs and cats and like animals you know trailing behind him like he was he had an unbelievable uh way with like a, like almost like the dog whisperer you know like that Cesar Milan guy like he had like this yeah, amazing yeah. way with animals he could uh he could tame wild animals he was uh, and, and you know his whole life if you look at pictures of him he's almost always surrounded by uh, all sorts of animals, right? This like almost like St. Francis of Assisi or something like that. It's very, uh, very freaky. And so I guess that's one of the things I I was curious to ask you is that my impression is that people who become you know, cult leaders and con artists and, and stuff like that, that generally speaking, they're they're just like 
empty inside. Like they're just like dead and they're just like fucking liars, you know, like they just, they, they're sort of missing the moral emotions and there's something just like, there's almost like an emotional colorblindness there. Right. And so what's freaky about Jim Jones is that, um, it, what what Daryl Cooper says in his podcast is he says, you know, I, I've read all these books on him in preparing for this podcast, and I think way too many people sort of because of we know how the story ends, right, with this mass suicide in Jonestown. And yep. we, we know that he turns into like a fucking psycho and like, you know, we, we know that it ends really terribly. And so he said people tend to go back and read all sorts of stuff into his earlier history and trying to sort of, and, and they don't like actually. And so one of the things he's trying to do in this podcast is uh, from what I can see so far is to say, actually, no, this guy was like pretty fucking awesome for a long time. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was actually, he, he did not um, abuse his power at first at all. He all the way to the, almost to the end, he didn't sort of do the typical televangelist thing where you like are stealing all the money, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, enriching yourself. Um, he he was pretty awesome for quite a while, and then he just just almost like a power corrupts thing, right? And then pretty soon, yeah. like by the end, he was the typical cult leader where he's like you know fucking everybody and kind of telling everybody he's a god and you know sleeping with all of his all the people in the organization men and women uh, you know becoming kind of very so what do you think how do you explain somebody like that with your kind of a criminologist i don't know i yeah sure i don't think that jim jones was a psychopath as in like a 30 plus you know, was pro- probably more psychopathic than your average person, but not particularly so. I think that, first of all, he's not the first person I've heard of that has a background of doing good things. So the guy who assassinated John Lennon, Mark David Chapman, for instance, if you look back in his history, I mean, they always kind of find things to pull out, but he was very active with the church and charitable organizations with the YMCA, helping to resettle uh, Vietnamese refugees and really seeming to try and be a good person. But at the end of the day, he didn't have the sort of financial and social success that Jim Jones had. And so he would find that at, at some point he would suddenly flip and become something entirely different. And it would be over the slightest thing. So at one point in time, Chapman was challenged. He was at a YMCA camp and he was like the leader. And he came along and he saw that there were kids out. I think they were canoeing or something when they were supposed to be doing something else. And the girl supervising them wasn't keeping them on task. So he approached her and he said, Hey, you know, what's going on? They're not doing what they're supposed to. And according to him, this girl turns around and says to him, well, who do you think you are? God. And you know, most of us that probably wouldn't end our identity, but it does with him. And he gives up this long illustrious career with the YMCA where he's done so much to help kids that they all cheer him captain nemo 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 and they've got plaques 
in fitness centers where he's helped out with, he was probably the, the most standout YMCA counselor they had in that part of the United States. And over that, he just walks away from it. And so I think perhaps the difference, one of the differences is that he was challenged more and he wasn't able to exercise the same sort of social power that Jim Jones did. But at the same time, you know, Chapman, let's look at him. He is a guy who is empty inside. He says, I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. I'm, a, I'm like, a, you know, a kid. I've, I've, this was, and he wanted to become a, a somebody. I don't think in his case either he had a real consolidated inner self. And all it would take would be, if we can think of good works as climbing, okay, climbing up a ladder, all it takes is one little shove to knock people off. You could even argue the higher the climb you know, the farther they fall and it's much easier to fall. Human nature, I believe is selfish and it's not altruistic. And when it's altruistic, it may even be somewhat selfish. I think it's easy to fall and very hard to perpetually climb. Hmm. So yeah, is that a decent start to an answer for you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I just, I, I just think it's, it's fascinating when you see these characters like, like Jim Jones or, uh, the the character in Boardwalk Empire, Nucky Thompson, you know, who's based on a, a real uh, a real guy who started off as a Victorian reformer, who was like pushing for all sorts of things like temperance and you know an anti slavery activist and all these di- like a person who's like a really sort of uh, progressive reformer who ends up becoming a kind of gangster bootlegger and you know all this stuff. Or um, uh, who's that guy, Louisiana, famous guy uh, in the 1930s who uh, rose to prominence? He, I'm totally like, he got his name. He was like a hardcore populist from Louisiana. But uh, oh, uh, you know, who I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, I do. Was his last name Wallace? Uh, not George. Not uh, George. Not the segregation today. Segregation tomorrow. Segregation forever guy. It was uh, no. There was a different Wallace. I was, it's an it's a, it's a Wallace as well. I, I'm blanking on the guy's I, I name. Think so yeah, yeah, me but too. But anyway, yeah. he's uh, he was like during the depression, he rose to prominence as a as a populist, you know, rising against like the the fat cats and all this stuff. And he was like super religious and like didn't drink. And eventually, he just becomes this incredibly Huey Long. That's it. Huey, Huey Long, Long, that yeah. was it. Yeah, uh, yeah, Huey Long. I almost had it. And yeah. uh, and he becomes uh, he becomes this like incredibly corrupt guy towards the end, right? So it's just interesting these people who who start off, um, you know, from these high high heights and then just descend into this this kind of. I, I'm always interested to know, you know, what is it that um, you know what. What happened? I mean, it seems like what Daryl Cooper is arguing in his podcast is that Jim Jones, his fatal flaw or flaws that eventually undid him was uh, that, first of all, he was incredibly neglected as a child. Uh, his his father was an invalid whose lungs were destroyed by uh, poison gas in World War One, and uh, so he was kind of prematurely aged and couldn't work and basically was on like a ventilator and stuff like that. And then his mom was uh, uninterested in being 
um, a mother who wasn't around a lot. And, uh, and so he would kind of walk around, like as a toddler would be found kind of walking around with like shit stained pants, like for by himself, like just totally unsupervised and kind of neglected. And so he had this like desperate, desperate desire to have people around or animals mm-hmm. around or people like he yep. just really wanted to, to have like an, to belong and to have kind of, he had this, I mean, you know, all humans to some extent have a, a desire for, for kind of community. And I mean, that's why in prison you put people in like the most violent, the most violent criminals in prison. And yet what's the most, horrible punishment right solitary confinement right that's like what most people are like you know give me anything but that you know like yeah and so, people will talk to themselves too in solitary confinement yeah so they start to converse with themselves this goes back to some george herbert mead shit right it's like once your i and me are developed uh you see yourself as an other uh, an object to other people and so you have the minute you have an identity or a self you need to communicate like this all arrives through communication yeah no so i mean we all have it to some extent and usually uh people like you know psychologist carl jung says that the difference between an extrovert and an introvert is is you know one of the differences is that extroverts um, need more of that that kind of stimulation than introverts do but it's not as if introverts don't need it it's just that introverts need less and they get sort of overstimulated um quicker right whereas uh, so if you put like an extrovert and introvert in solitary confinement the extrovert is going to probably go crazy faster you know but but they will both go crazy eventually so he says that uh, jim jones his his desperate desire to to sort of have people around him or animals around him all the time. Like he just wanted to have like a, an entourage around him all the time. That, that was uh, one of his undoing. And also that he had a, he, he figures he had like some paranoid tendencies. He yeah. had like some, some mental health problems on the, the, the paranoia side. Uh, but basically because he because he was such like a nice person and he did so much good stuff, the people close to him, including his, his wife, um, uh, Marceline, they basically just made excuses for him all the time. And they're like, well, okay, you know, yeah, he's got these weird quirks, uh, but he does like so much, which he really did. I mean, the guy, I mean, <laughs> I've, I've tried to set up a number of things. I've, and I've been a part of, working in various community organizations and things like that. And I am just absolutely in the first couple chapters of this book, I was just blown away. This guy, by the time he was in his mid twenties, he had set up a soup kitchen that provided, you know, didn't provide like a meal once a week. It provided three hot meals a day, seven days a week. He found a way to fund this. He found a way to get like tons of volunteers to work this thing. It, it was just mind blowing. Like he was taking tons and tons of homeless people, feeding them, clothing them, uh, getting them skills, 
getting them into apartments, getting them on, getting them like so that they could collect government assistance, getting them skills so that they could get jobs, uh, you know, getting them medical care, uh, you know, advocating for like little old lady, like little old black ladies that were getting like fucked over by the power company, like, you know, basically getting like a massive letter writing campaign to harass the power company into like fixing her connections so that she had heat or if it just, he did like so much amazing stuff. Right. And so people made ex- sort of made excuses for his shortcomings and, and gradually because his charisma was so strong, he, he kind of passed on his paranoia to his followers, almost like giving everybody a cold or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm having thought overloads here, so I'd better start getting them out before I get constipated. Shoot. So here we go. So the first thought is, think of how much time he must have been and thought he must have been investing in all of these enterprises. It's almost like you've heard that saying, the lady doth protest too much. It's almost like, the charitable man doth help too much. Like it's, it's extreme. It is basically all he is doing. And so then you go, okay, well, why is that? And it's like, well, where's Jim in here? Where's Jim's time for Jim? Where does Jim get to sit down and be introspective and take a break and, you you know, maybe be a little bit less productive, but it's, I'm almost reminded of that guy who just works overtime and gets as many hours as possible because if he stopped he convinces himself he's doing it so he can stop one day but if the truth is if he did stop he would completely fall to pieces because he has no inner life like no introspection and no is completely out of touch with his own emotions and needs so really if you completely neglect yourself and taking care of yourself for helping out others that can turn pretty bad because then all of what you are is invested in other people. But if what you are becomes corrupt, then the same people that you're giving medicine to you poison eventually. Does that make some sense? Yeah, no, he, he definitely, I mean, I think, I think his desire to, to help people was motivated partially because he grew up extremely poor and so he like he had a deep kind of sympathy for for that you know how horrible that is and and specifically he had a he had a sympathy for how when you're really poor and you're dirty and you're kind of uneducated that people just like look past you you know mm-hmm. it was uh, and like you know the way that like people will just like not look a panhandler in the eyes you know, like, like to not acknowledge. And, and one of the things people always remarked on Jim Jones is that like, he would actually look panhandlers and, you know, and poor people and people that smelled disgusting, like you know, pissed through their clothes and junkies and people who just like been street people for a long time. And he would look them directly in the eyes. He would, you know, shake their hands. He would hug them. He would remember their names. He would talk to them like a human being, like completely not in this kind of like, 
I'm like an activist and I'm coming here to save you people. Like, you know, like this yep. kind of arrogant, he would look him directly in the eyes like a human being and he'd joke around with them. And he would like, he just, he had this ability to form these connections with people. Right. And then, you know, once those people, you know, not all of them, most of them just took the meal and the, and the clothes and left. I mean, the vast majority of them just like took the help and like left, right? But the ones who yeah. joined his organization, they would, I mean, think about if you were that fucking low, you were that low and somebody came to you and, you know, and treated you like a human being and treated you with like love and dignity and and not talk talking down to you or anything. Like those people would do anything for him afterwards. And many of them mm-hmm. did. They killed for him. They lied for him. They stole for him. They did all sorts of things for him. You know? Yeah, so you've got to ask yourself of all along, or at least somewhat into this, you realize that helping people is actually a mechanism of control. You know, the Oedipal mother, the Oedipal mother right? Where... Uh, mother does so much for the child that the child becomes forever dependent on mother and it kind of satisfies mother's own narcissism. Now that just sprung into my head there too. Another thing that you brought up, which I think we can say a lot of these cult leaders have is they are delusional. Like that almost always comes in there, whether they're the head of a intrastate cult. So let's say like the people's temple or whether it's, you know, Stalin presiding over the USSR or once again, Hitler over Germany or, you know, back to the interstate Manson. A lot of the qualities you actually just described reminded me of Manson to some extent. It was just, I don't know, shaped a slightly different way. Manson would look people in the eyes. He'd tell them that, you know, that they had worth, that they were free, you know, people that had been cut loose by their families. And so I think, uh, I think if we're to solve this, riddle of who is Jim Jones, you know, maybe looking for commonalities across people that are like Jim Jones and going, okay, well, what is similar and what is dissimilar here? It's an interesting question. Yeah. Well, definitely in terms of the the followers, you can see, you know, both, both Charles Manson and Jim Jones and, uh, you know, that, that would definitely be like a commonality with a lot of these, these people is that they are, going, you know, and this is, I mean, Jesus did the same thing, right? I mean, Jesus was preaching to, to kind Mm. of the people who were the rejects. He was, and Christianity spread originally among kind of the outcasts, right? The people that were like not, you know, the rejects of society and stuff like that. And and that's, um, I mean, that's definitely those kinds of people, if you want to grow an organization, right? I mean, just look at, I mean, there's so many examples of this, but, um, you know, to some extent, I think Jordan Peterson, his, I've, I've gone to a couple of his talks and, you know, what you find again and again is kind of young guys who were just in such a dark place. I mean, just like in a really rough place, like where they, they felt useless. They, you know, probably were struggling with depression and anxiety and feelings of worthlessness and not being able to 
just not being able to like make anything work, right? And they they discover him, and you know, meanwhile they're being told by their when they've gone to school and they're in school, they've been told like that they suck and you're useless. And then they go to like universities and colleges and they're being told like, you're like a privileged piece of patriarchal piece of shit. And you're like a horrible, and they're like, what are you talking about? Toxic. Yeah. Yeah. You're like this horrible. And then they have this person who comes along and is actually, you know, looking them in the eye and talking to them like they are worthy of love, right? That they're worthy of care and is saying, giving them words of encouragement and surprise, surprise. They are like, you know, devoted to this guy. And they like, they really, really kind of respond to his, his message. And, you know, and I've talked to some of my colleagues, like in my department, they're like, I don't understand. He's a cult leader. I'm like, okay, he's not a cult leader. What are you talking about? They're like, like, oh, he's he's a white nationalist. He's like, I'm like, "Uh, no, he's not. He's not. And I'm like, you know, actually, like, has it occurred to you? Like, let's do like, you know, what's the, you know, Occam's razor here. Like, could it be that maybe talking to people like they are inherently worthwhile and that they are, you know, that they're kind of worthy of care and that they should, like, maybe people respond well to that. Maybe talking to people like they're pieces of shit is not a good strategy if you're trying to build a broad-based movement. <laughs> like, yeah. And they just, like, completely <laughs> just, like, you know, it, it just, you know, the point flying over their heads. Like, they just, like, yeah. do not, like, they will not hear that. They're like, no, it must be something else. But but I think, you know, Charles Manson, um, you know, Jesus, Jim Jones, uh, Jordan Peterson. I mean, we could go. The list goes on and on and on. But definitely, uh, I'm not saying that those they're they're the same. I'm just saying that speaking to people as yep. if they matter, regardless of whether your motives are 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 noble or or sleazy, is definitely a good growth strategy. Which is why it amazes me when I hear progressives who are supposed to be kind of like small D Democrats, where you are trying to kind of go against the kind of the 1% or go against the rich and powerful or the elite, then obviously um, if you're going to go against these powerful minorities, you need to build as big a movement as possible, right? As broad-based. You have to have as many people on your team as possible because numbers are your strength, right? And this is, you know, this is a basic sort of thing in a lot of kind of movement politics, right? That's that's what you have to have on your, like, uh, you know, as Jim Jones put it, like, they they got the guns, but we got the, we num- got the numbers. I think it was Jim Morrison. Jim, Jim Morrison, Jones, right? Yeah, like uh, we've got... He's a great cult Like uh, five to one, baby. One in five. One in five. And the one <laughs> no here one gets, here gets out, out alive. alive. <laughs> you get yours and maybe I get mine. Yeah, uh, But like that was the, the whole idea that the, the baby boomers had. And this is, is that, okay, they've got the the money and the guns, but we've got the the numbers. We can we can put millions of people in the street. We can, you know, so on and so forth. So it just seems like a, a basic 
tenet of progressive politics is that you have to be able to, you know, build bridges and work with as many people as possible to have like a very broad based movement so that you can uh, produce numbers on election day so that you can produce numbers in demonstrations so that, you know, and so on and so forth. So having like a, a very divisive politics seems to me just incredibly counterproductive to basic progressive aims. You know yeah, what I mean? I don't think, yeah, I do, but I don't think that they really care too much about those <laughs> aims. I think they're very comfortable middle-class spoiled people. And it's actually to do with the consolidation of their own identity as part of a, a group and a leader of a group where otherwise it'd be completely unremarkable people. I think that's their goal. You know, it's like the person that dyes their hair bright pink and puts 800 earrings through their face. You know, they can convince you they're doing that because, yeah, I'm punk rock. But really, they can just say, well, the reason you think I'm ugly is because this, right? <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. It's it's a show, dude. Yeah. It's it's a yeah. demonstration. Yeah, I mean, it could it could be. I mean, I know I have I have talked to some people who say that um, and, you know, they they only say this after like uh, a bunch of whiskeys and you know, like <laughs> when they're like, you know, really kind of telling you what they really think. Uh, but I, I have heard some people say, well, you know, um, the, the whole idea of trying to work through um, democratic politics and, and trying to, you know, through consciousness raising and stuff like that, that was the strategy, you know, back in the day, but really like, we don't think that's, we don't think that's the way you really get things done kind of in the kind of late capitalist societies. And actually the better way to do it is this sort of the Leninist way, which is you have a vanguard party, which um, basically seizes control of states, institutions, organizations. And so rather than like building an organization from the ground up or rather than like building broad-based coalitions with lots of people and, you know, the old kind of Saul Alinsky kind of organizing where you're, you're doing like re yep. retail politics and you're going like door to door and you're talking to people and you're Brass trying roots, to, yeah. yeah, you're trying to like bridge difference. Instead, what you do is you just um, hijack the HR department at your <laughs> college or you hijack like, and you get, you, you, kind of get laws passed, you know, in favor. And so you use the power of the state or the power of the college or the university or the power of you, you hijack uh, these institutions and then you get them to impose your ideas from above. So it's a very top down thing. Right. Oh, you yeah. As it always is, you know, like same old story. It just sounds exactly like you said, like uh, Lenin, you know, or uh, so many of these movements that are uh, rooted in Marxism have completely missed the point. You know, for Marx, to my understanding, like, he's got written voluminously. So I haven't read all of his stuff, of course, nor have I memorized it. But I always understood this came at a certain point in history where it was inevitable and it was very much a grassroots thing. And uh, it certainly didn't come from the middle class. The middle class was the enemy. 
well, we've just seen the same mistake repeated. They're misinterpreting their own dogma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's a that's a whole other rabbit hole. My God. I before I before I forget, I I, I gotta know you're you're doing all these really, really exciting things with virtual reality and with kind of teaching in virtual reality world. I mean, tell us about this. Well, it's actually a good segue because about half of it is a response to the situation you just described about middle-class, unremarkable people who are certain of their political views and that they are correct and they have a mission hijacking HR departments and making rules that we're all supposed to follow. And I would say that that's the state of academia now. You and I have talked about how all the professors have dwindled and the administration has become bloated. Yeah. And I walked right out of my doctorate degree and I walked into that world. Of course, I was already pretty wary of it, but I decided to give it a shot. And I don't know. I think I'm a pretty, I think I have a pretty impressive resume. Yeah, it's and extremely, so I was ex- it's really, really impressive. Yeah. Right. Thank you. So, uh, so, yeah, just walking into that world and, you know, not um, uh, putting out dozens of CVs and, and not getting hired. And then the closest I got was for a job I was really overqualified for. And I know that a certain person who works there wanted me to work there. But I spoke to this person privately and they said, yeah, I, I really talked you up to my boss and I sold you. But then he turned around and said, "Are you? is he diverse? So am I diverse? Diverse, that's code, right? You know what that means. Yeah. Is, he, is he not a heterosexual white male? And I think after all these other opportunities fell through and I heard that, and I'm grateful that that person told me that, so I won't n- name them or the institution because... You know, I have uh, basic morality, you know, uh, I, I'm looking at the long game here. It's like, OK, thanks. I get it. And once I heard that, I was like, you know what? Fuck you. I don't want to join your little cult. I'm going to beat your cult. So my new motto is uh, John Faithful going into 2020 is if you can't join them, beat them. And so I'm building my <laughs> own university I'm building my own fucking university, dude. And I get to draw the boundaries. And I, I can't wait. And then around this time, just after I finished my doctorate, I run into a person who's listening to my podcast, Murder Was the Case. She contacts me. She says, hey, I really want to listen to you uh, in virtual reality. The, a bunch of us get together in virtual reality, and we really love listening to Murder Was the Case. Is it okay if I make a dive bar space in Murder Was the Case? Oh, fuck. So, that, yeah, because, <laughs> so you know, awesome. you, you, you know, my talk sessions are called the dive bar, right? Yeah, yeah. Kind of, we drink. And I, I said, OK, yeah, sure. I mean, are you monetizing it at all? She said, no, it's just a fun thing. I said, OK, you know, if you start to monetize it, we'll talk about that. But no, you can just stream it in there. And then I found out that this person lived in Washington state. Well, guess where I just happened to be going like a week later? Seattle? Washington state. Yeah, there you go to hang out with my <laughs> my de- detective friend and go and look at all the Ted Bundy and Gary Ridgway dump sites and the Twin Peaks place. And so I was Fun like, times. you know, yeah. Oh dude, it was amazing. I love it out that way. <laughs> love it out that way. So eerie, uh, but b- beautiful too. But anyway, so I, I turned around and said, okay, well, 
I'm heading out that way. I've never tried this VR thing. You know, I just thought that was like in the future sometime and that was never going to happen. You know, would you want to get together and, and talk about some projects and maybe you can show me this? She said, yeah. So we met up in Seattle, hung out, talked about some projects. And then I, uh, headed back to her place and put on the VR helmet and I stepped inside of my own the first my first experience in VR I put on a helmet I step inside a dive bar where my own voice is just resonating everywhere so it actually it was very close to reality that's the fucked up thing except Whoa. I'm in virtual reality <laughs> yeah in in a bar hearing my loud voice obnoxiously chant right it's like you know, why did I even bother going into a virtual reality? <laughs> I could have stayed in my regular reality. But all jokes aside, I was in there and I'm going, you know, you're trying to figure out the controls and stuff, but I'm absolutely blown away. You, you're got to be kidding. You're telling me that we're this far ahead in VR. I had no idea. You know, I was still thinking we were like at the lawnmower man type stage but no it's like it's like stepping inside uh this platform that i was i went into sansar it's basically second life without all the uh creepy shit they've weeded that out and they've uh, allowed it to be a vr option so it's like walking inside something that looks as good as a as a high-end video game except you're not playing games you can if you want i don't think that 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 that's the best use of the medium you're going in there to socialize with other people so like you and i are having a conversation now which is more it would be more organic if we were in person but it's, it's pretty fluid it's a lot better than social media well, you and that, I that's because we've known each other for a very long time so i can picture you saying everything you're saying like i can picture I, your face and your expressions and stuff like that well the interesting thing is that it turns out that when you're in uh, Sansar, whether you're in VR or not, you have either option. But I don't see people fighting much. It's like once you get once you get back to natural conversations where people can go on at length and ask for clarification and hear tone of voice, people become civil with each other once again. So it's not like and Twitter so, with like cartoon no. characters. Oh, Twitter's fucking awful. You know, yeah. I, I can't wait for the day that we can get away from that. I go in to Sansar and I make friends with pretty much everyone I speak with and everyone is respectful and we can still exchange controversial ideas or you get a sense of someone go, okay, well, let's just not bring that up. That's not going to be a fun night, but you can't do that on Twitter. And so for me, it's, uh, I remember ripping off the headset to get back to where I was and I look back at my friend, the person who introduced me to VR. And I said, you know, this is going to change history and it's really dangerous. And that was my first impression. You know, when you really dive into something new, wow, you see all the dangers of it. But in the time since, cause I um, immediately went out and picked up the necessary PC to run it in the headset, I figured it was worth investing in. And at the time since I see it as actually not this dystopian thing that people always say, oh, virtual reality, people that's all people will do. No, not at all. It's actually the antidote to the, and here's a word I hate, but I'm going to use it, toxicity of the social media we're using now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I, I, you know, I, I heard the thing that, you know, your interview with that, that German guy, and I found it really fascinating. Uh, but, you know, I, I wonder what's actually going on with virtual reality. Because, you know, Neil Stevenson, 
uh, the fantastic sort of science fiction writer, hard science fiction writer, he published Snow Crash in 1992, right? And 1992, he was imagining this future where people live out a whole bunch of their life in these virtual reality kind of online worlds, right? And he's he's been following that thread for a long time. I mean, his most recent um, novel, which... If you haven't read it yet, oh my god, like, get this immediately. It'll completely, especially given, like, where you're moving right now, like, this this novel will absolutely blow your mind. It's called Fall, or mm-hmm. um, Dodge in Hell, and that's the subtitle of the book. Um, but it's Neil Stevenson's new book, but it's, you know, not to give away too much of the novel, but it it's basically, there's this online world where it it becomes better and better and better and it's exactly like what you were saying how you know i want to be the you know at the head of the gold rush i want to be the person to set up the yeah. saloon and set up like the canteen and you know the the best whorehouse well, and bar you know, kind of we, we didn't say that on this podcast so i should clarify what that is uh one of the reasons that i wanted to get to vr so quickly and invested this much money in it is because i think vr particularly in Sansar, is the frontier. And it's rare that I find the frontier, John, and I know what happens in the frontier. That's where the gold is. That's where the opportunity is. And you want to get there before the bank and the railroads railroads, and you want to set up. And so that's why I'm moving on this building a university idea so quickly. Yeah, no, I, I, I love the idea. My, my question is just that Neil Stevenson was saying in 1992 that uh, in Snow Crash that this was the future. And that was a really long time ago. And he was saying that again in the Diamond Age in 1999. And a number of his novels have sort of talked about how in the future we're all going to be in virtual reality. And it doesn't seem to be happening. And that that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, I had S- Stephen Marsh, the author I had him on the podcast just a couple weeks ago, and he said, I mean, this is for what it's worth, he, he talked about virtual reality because he's basically followed um, the history of, there's this Japanese pop star, uh, I, I'm blanking on the name right now, but it's a, a Japanese pop star that is does not actually exist, is just a virtual reality, like a, a hologram, and there are, um, and she sort of goes around the world on tour and has like millions of fans all over the world. And he, he went to like a, an actual, um, a concert in, in New York for this. And, you know, there's all these like, screaming fans and stuff like that. And this is a hologram. It's a virtual, it's not like a real, uh, not a real person. <laughs> just and yeah. so he was talking there was about simulacrum. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a Japanese hologram. I'm just looking it up here. But this person uh, never, never H- has Hatsune existed, right? Miku. Hats- she ne- yeah, she never has existed, right? No. So it's a simulacrum. Yeah, and it's and so he was talking about like you know virtual reality and you know how's that how that's going. And have you seen the new season of Black Mirror? 
yeah, dude. Okay. Vipers. Yeah. That made me, that stirred some things within me there that threw me a loop. <laughs> Isn't that just wild? Oh, yeah. I, I've had my, my love and friendship class. I had them watch that, uh, that I've assigned a number of episodes of Black Mirror to that class, but I had them, um, for, uh, for actually the test that they're writing on, uh, uh, two days from now, um, they they had to watch that episode, and we had a whole discussion because I mean it's just so freaky, right? Like the, I mean like what I what I really liked about that episode is that it it gets into the idea that if virtual reality if it's really really good, then it means that you're gonna have experiences there, which are not just kind of an extension of experiences in real life that they're going to be something completely different. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, cause I, I, I thought when, okay, I'm, I'm totally spoiler alert to anybody. If you, if you haven't watched the episode right now uh, and you want to press stop on this podcast and go watch it and then come back to the and podcast. <laughs> consider that strongly because it's an excellent episode. It's, it's one of so, the best so, pieces of television I've seen in a while. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. What I thought, I mean, you could tell me like what, what your take on it was, but like what I thought was really brilliant about the writing in that episode is that it would have been so easy for them to sort of say that one of the guys is, is actually, or one of them or both of them are actually gay or trans what I think was so brilliant about the writing is that they're not. Yep. <laughs> they're not. They're, they're, neither of them are gay. Neither of them are trans, transgendered. It's that this technology... Well, first of all, the implication, I think, from the episode is that uh, your sexuality and your, your gender identity are have a biological basis, that they're, they're rooted in... in embodiedness like in literally in being like a body like a physical person in the world right and so if you can create a virtual world that that basically in some important ways kind of severs that thread and has has you embodied in something else well you could potentially have all sorts of experiences in that virtual world which don't have any necessary connection to to your real life, which yes. is amazing, which means that you're basically like a fucking shapeshifter. You know what I mean? Like you can just be something completely different. Yeah. And there are people that do that. You know, there's uh, what I like about VR in a way, especially you brought up the trans issue, is that because everyone is representing themselves as something other than what they biologically manifest as in the real world, if somebody shows up and they're a man with a female avatar, it's nowhere near as jarring as it is in, say, reality reality, because everyone's playing a role to some extent. Nobody's manifesting what we believe them to actually be. So, you know, if you think of yourself as this eight foot tall muscle monster, you can be that, but it's not like everyone's being that. The interesting thing is a lot of people show up and they're tiny, they're tiny little, you know, fairy creatures or angels with wings flying around or aliens. I was hanging out with that, um, Sonic, that Sonic, the hedgehog the other day. <laughs> I was, uh, I don't know if you saw this tweet I sent out, John, but 
I said something like, I used to argue on Twitter. Now I run around a mental hospital with a talking bee and robotic Michael Jackson. And I got like 12 likes. I guess some people <laughs> found it found it funny. They, they thought I was making a joke about how I used to think I'd lost my mind. But now having lost my mind, I'm actually, you know what I mean? There's but no, I was being literal. I that's what I was doing. I was running around a mental hospital with a talking bee in England and a robotic and a robotic Michael Jackson in the United States. <laughs> yeah. I think in virtual reality I would be a talking snake uh who was follow around followed nice. around by some hot Dothraki backup singers who sang, it is known, it is known, <laughs> after, like, everything I say. That's, that would be my virtual reality, like, uh, that would be my thing. Talking Snake with hot Dothraki backup singers. There, there it is. No, actually, I don't know. I've never done virtual reality. But, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it's interesting what you, what you could do in virtual reality, like, for sure. Okay, yeah. So... Yeah, the other day I was hanging out with somebody who was a bench. So they could sit there and look like a prop and you wouldn't know until you talk to them, you know, or they talk to you, <laughs> I should say. Or if you managed to hover your mouse over them and their name popped up. And so we were sitting on this person while we were talking to them. So if you can make a bench, we can certainly make a snake with singing Dothrakis behind them. <laughs> well, in uh, in Neil Stevenson's new novel Fall, they they create this incredibly vivid kind of uh, virtual reality where people can actually sort of, if you've got a lot of money, you can basically download your entire your entire they'll like do um, like read every single neuron and every connection in your brain and everything, and so your whole kind of consciousness will be like uploaded into this virtual world and you can live there and so originally people um basically get uploaded as as sort of themselves like you know human things but then some people say well you know i don't want to be human i want to be like a fairy or i want to be a tree or I want to, or I want to be like a mountain <laughs> or I want to I want to have wings right and and so people just start getting like more and more creative with it and this well yeah oh my god it's such a freaky mind blowing novel but it's you see like kind of what happens and it's it's pretty wild i mean it's it's pretty wild but and then there's all these like kind of ethical debates that happen where like at first you have these sort of like kind of romantic hippie types who are really into authenticity who say like, well, you know, you, you have to be as much like yourself as possible. And then you have to be, it has to be kind of a faithful um, kind of representation of who you are. But then like you have some people like this one character who was born with a, a deformity in her legs. And so she, she, basically doesn't have she's been in a wheelchair her whole life and she's and she's like I don't want to like I don't want to be like disabled in mm -hmm. in my afterlife I want to be abled right and then so all these like disability groups say like 
oh, well, you're being prejudiced and we're just differently abled. And she's like, oh, fuck off. She's like, no, I don't want to be just, she's like, I don't want to be disabled when I'm uploaded into the world. But, but then she sort of takes it farther and she's like, not only do I not want to be disabled, I want to have wings. (laughs) And And so she basically trains with these like Cirque du Soleil type people while she's still alive to, um, know how to how to fly in the afterlife which is a virtual reality life just absolutely amazing i mean it's so so freaky but but so you're you're setting yourself up in this virtual reality as a professor almost like sort of the alienist in a victorian kind of like (laughs) pocket watch and like you know top hat and you're gonna be your classroom is gonna look like one of those wonderful Victorian operating theaters where the students are looking down while you're dissecting some dude and like, <laughs> except you're going to be dissecting minds, right? Is that sort of the basic look of it? You got it, man. I think that the Victorian period is a fascinating setting aesthetically, and it's also a fascinating time. But, but yes, it was also the time where we had the growth of the alienists. So beyond just the feel of it and the tone of it that I think people will relate to more. As I was saying in uh, the the video that you saw, uh, though new classrooms are very clean and very spare and they have lots of light, I think they lack some of the richness and the dignity that those old classrooms have. It's almost like the building, the room itself makes you respect the institution. And yeah. And so I really, uh, it's partially aesthetic wanting to create a tone and harken back to that period of the alienist and, you know, the, the sex criminal at loose Jack, the Ripper, spring Jack, whatever. The other part of it too, is a statement of what I'm doing in a way. It's like, we're returning, we're returning to the old model of university here. I'm not going to sit here and fill you full of bullshit, and miseducate you and send you out in the world, you know, just droning on about things you have no understanding about. This is a real education, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to do. And you'll see me, I'm going to come into class. You're right. I'm going to have great threads on. I'm going to have a waistcoat, a pocket watch, bowler hat. And I, instead of holding a clicker, I hold a pipe. And so I can move around a PowerPoint presentation, of course. Uh, but at the same time, you don't see me with this little electronic clicker in your hand, in my hand. You see me holding a pipe as if I'm smoking it, you know, gesticulating with it in a way. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, how do you, do you see this in any way um, connected to, you know, what's this, uh, Thaddeus, uh, you know, unregistered, the unregistered uh, podcast. I'm so, totally like blanking on his name right now. The uh, Thaddeus Russell, um, his unregistered podcast. Like he's been starting this um, kind of renegade university, and he hmm. it's kind of like also kind of trying to break out of the the, the kind of institutional restraints of the university at the moment and trying to do something different on a on a very sort of libertarian, almost kind of anarchistic kind of lines is, I mean, it, it seems to me like 
I he could benefit a lot from doing because what he's doing is he's having people kind of link up online, but then he actually meets them in person, like in DC and in Portland and a couple of other places. He actually meets them in person. So, I mean, do you see this as being completely a virtual reality thing, or do you see this as having like a a, a real world component where you get together and in real life from time to time, or is it just going to be completely online? I don't think we have to say it's completely this way or, or, you know, that we'll just see what people want. You know, there's absolutely no reason why if people say, Hey, I want to meet up too. It's like, yeah, okay, sure. We can do that once or twice or whatever. You know, of course that's going to affect the cost of any course that I'm giving because that means plane tickets and meetup spots or, you know, maybe not. We go to Starbucks or some shit like that. Yeah. But no, I, I ha- that's just something I haven't even planned for. Right now, I'm thinking about the possibility of taking people on field trips in a classroom. Can you imagine you're learning about blood spatter analysis and then I take you into a room where you can actually try it for yourself, where we're flinging blood around, putting it on hammers in the middle of a lecture. Then we walk out of that room and we walk back into my lecture and we resume. I'm talking, you know, we can go on a field trip to Whitechapel in 1888. That's what I'm working on right now. You're going to walk in the footsteps of Jack the Ripper. You're not going to be looking at a 2D overhead map. You're going to follow me and we'll walk through those gaslit streets and you can see for yourself. Uh, Unbelievable. Tell me how. That's it, bro. Tell me how the education system as it currently is, is going to match that, especially when you have, look, I've got my doctorate. I'm fit to teach at a university. You know, I'm serious business. Yeah. Yeah. So they're getting the, they're getting the quality education, but enhanced better tone, better room. And I'll tell you what, the one thing I'm certainly keeping out of there is any of this nonsense. We're not going to have bloated administrations and we're not going to have students ratting on the teacher. Yeah. Well, I, I remember I, I knew uh, as, a, as a prof, I knew that basically my, my profession is, you know, it doesn't have much of a future. <laughs> it doesn't have much of a future. Uh, I you knew, do now, buddy. I, I knew that it didn't, you know, in its present form, in the way that I'm, uh, I knew that it didn't have much of a future. The first time I watched, have you ever heard of Khan Academy? No. Okay, so check it out. There's this guy. Uh, he's um, he's American. I think he's like he. I think he's like of uh, originally from Bangladesh, or at least his parents are. Uh, anyway, he for his, if I remember correctly, for his nephew, his nephew was having trouble in school, and he's in like I don't know elementary school, middle school, beginning of high school, something like that. He's having trouble in school. And so he started making these like little tutorials for his nephew um, and where he would just be like, let's say, going over some basic ideas in like biology or physics or chemistry. And, you know... (laughs) When, when, when this interview is done, go and check a, check out a couple of his things. It will blow your mind. It's called Khan Academy. It became this thing called Khan Academy where he's making these YouTube videos. And they're just like a little kind of like where he just explains. And this guy's a fantastic teacher. And he was making these videos <laughs> inside his closet 
And it's like super, super low budget, very kind of like, you know, sound quality is not amazing, but he's just a very, very good teacher. And I found out about him because a bunch of my, a bunch of my students were telling me, oh, you know, I don't even pay attention in my math class because my Cal teacher uh, is a terrible teacher. He should have uh, retired like 20 years ago. He's absolutely horrible. But basically, I just like fuck around on my phone all the way through class. And then I go home and I go on YouTube and uh, I and I I basically click go to Khan Academy and I click on um, what I was supposed to learn in in class that day and I I listened to, and this guy like and I and we're talking students that were getting 90s in all their classes and and they either were not going to their classes or not paying attention in class and they would just go to Khan Academy and learn it from him right Bill Gates gave this guy like like a billion dollars like to expand mm-hmm. his Peter Thiel has given a, a bunch of money as well uh, it, his stuff is just it's just amazing but i remember watching this and thinking if this is our competition like we're in a lot of trouble <laughs> cuz this guy i mean you'll see if you watch him i mean you're a teacher you're an educator like it's one of those things where like if you're i don't know if you're a really good like fighter and then you watch like ufc UFC. championships you're like oh my god like that guy's amazing or if you're like if you're really good in basketball when you're a teenager and then you watch like you know somebody who's really kind of a pro you're like damn the guy's got game you watch khan and you're just like this guy is so good at choosing exactly the right analogy at you know he's just he's amazing right and then Mm -hmm. jordan peterson of course has built his career largely by just putting out these incredibly long-winded lectures on, like, abstruse topics where the sound quality sucks and he's got that screechy Canadian accent and, like, and people love it, you know? Like, they've been listening. So, I mean, if you can take this to the next level with virtual reality like you're talking about, I think, people are just going to lap it up. Thanks, buddy. And so my long game is we start with the criminology department and then we start adding, I think, a history department next. And you know I've got my sights on you. Yeah, well, I mean, if you, if you, if it's set up well, this could just, it just could be amazing because it could get to so many people, right? And I I look at, like, my son, my son, Indy, my 16-year-old, he is... His art is so, so, so fantastic. Like he's gotten so good so fast. And he, I mean, yeah, he's learned some stuff from his teachers at school, but very little. Most of what he's learned, he's learned from following artists on YouTube. And they have all these tutorials. Mm-hmm. And he's watched like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours on how to do, you know, different techniques. And, right, I have a, this woman that I work with in my department, her and her husband, well, now ex-husband, but that's, that's another story. But uh, but her and her ex-husband, they bought, uh, they're both like academics, don't know, you know, don't know anything about like 
tools and, and handyman stuff and, you know, fixing shit and anything. They bought like a, a fixer upper on the West Island for like for nothing, <laughs> like, like really very, very little money because the place just needed like huge amount of renovations. And they fixed the entire place. I mean, it took them like a few years uh, but they did all the renovations from the plumbing to the electrical to the drywall to the, like, you name it. They did to the brickwork. They did, they fixed this place up, did hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of renovations on this place, all from YouTube. They basically just, like, went to, like, YouTube videos that tell you how to how to do this and how to do that and you know there was a little bit of trial and error sometimes they found like okay a, pers- a particular person like gives like shitty advice you know we did that and like the basement flooded <laughs> you know, like but you yep. figure out you figure out who you can trust who's a good teacher who gives like accurate information you listen to them and you listen to who they recommend and then gradually they were able to do all of this like completely you know, I mean, once the the power of this kind of education is is really sort of when more and more people realize it, uh, formal education is I I don't know how it's going to compete. Oh, it won't. It's already dying. I think, especially too when the degrees you're issuing so many of them. And they don't necessarily make you a more effective worker. And sometimes they make you a terrible thinker. They make you a worse thinker. Yeah. So it's like you're issuing all this currency and you can't buy anything with it. People aren't taking it. They say, yeah, I see that you've got money there, but you can't buy anything from me with that. I know it's not not necessarily worth anything. Yeah. So. No, I think it's definitely, I, I think, you know, to some extent, there's definitely things that I learned. Uh, there's things that I learned in graduate school that were really helpful. Um, definitely, like there's thing uh, you know, it was a good experience in some ways. But but I I also learned some really bad intellectual habits in grad school that took me uh, years to kind of uh, undo them, uh, undo the damage, you know. Yeah, sorry, dude. I just got an amber alert right in the middle of that. I couldn't turn the volume down. That's amazing. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, did you find like in because I I found that in grad school that uh, that I actually you know I I learned a lot of really useful things, but I also I learned some bad habits, which took me years to undo. Right, yeah, like like I, bad intellectual. Like for instance, I learned I, I was taught how to speak in a um, a sort of a dialect of of English, um, an academic academic keys, right? Which yep. is like basically is usually kind of it, it bad has writing. some yeah, it, it, like bad writing, and also just using words that are not that are not necessary. Like okay, some of the words are definitely more precise. That's true, but very often they're they're used just as a way of excluding the uninitiated. It's like, you know, there's a number of books that have been written on this with in the medical profession, like, you know, saying like tibia instead of like leg bone, stuff like that. It's just a way of excluding 
the uninitiated. It's not because you need to say that. You're just being a jerk. Like you're just like saying something that you're trying to make yourself sound like you have special knowledge when when really you just have a special vocabulary. Right. I have a pr- pretty good bullshit detector, and I caught a lot of that stuff early. So when I was doing my 400-level classes in my history BA, I guess they felt all we needed to read was Foucault. And so I'd sit down with these Foucault books, and I'd, it'd be like solving a puzzle. It's like I'm trying to get the information you're telling me, but it's all in code. And so half the time, I just wouldn't bother to decode it. But when I did decode it, and found out what the dude was saying. I was like, you could have summarized that in an essay, man. And I already thought of almost like, you know, 85% of that. And so I think, especially with postmodernism and that sort of barrier to entry being through that they're speaking in code, a lot of the time it's to obfuscate the fact that the ideas aren't very good and actually crumble when you even just start kicking at them a little bit. So there's that. But while we're on the topic of writing, one of the, things that I hate the most about academic standards is this idea that it's objective if you write in the passive tense. We all know that writing in the active tense is a stronger way of writing. That's why we teach children or adults who want to be good writers to write in the active tense. But academia encourages the passive tense because it's more objective. But no one has been able to explain to me why it is more objective. I've never heard a good explanation for that. In fact, they don't even attempt it anymore. Yeah. They just go, it's just the way it is. Well, fuck the way it is. <laughs> I don't roll that way, man. I don't roll that way. Yeah. We're in we're we're in the halls of reason here. We're in the halls where debate matters. And you're telling me, oh, just go with it. That's just the way it is. No, that's the opposite of what this place can be. Unless you can make a really great point as to why I have to write worse habitually, I'm not doing it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the original reason was that you were supposed to be. I mean, this is like when you see on the American dollar bill, right? The the all seeing eye, right? There's the pyramid, and then the the all seeing eye is like hovering above the pyramid, right? The idea was that uh, once you, when you are just like a lowly person and you're down at the the ground level, right? You are on one side of the pyramid, and so you know your your view is is kind of obstructed by like whatever's in front of you. Um, but also you are like kind of, you can only see at one, uh, at any one point of time, like about like, you know, sort of a third of the horizon as it were. Right. And so you crawl up the pyramid of knowledge and enlightenment. And as you get higher up the pyramid, you can sort of, turn around and because you're higher up, you can see farther and you can see kind of a more of a, a view, right? And then you, but when you get to the top and you achieve a kind of enlightenment, which was the, the sort of central metaphor of the, the enlightenment, was that at that point, when you get to the top, you can not only see everything on your side of the pyramid really well, you can now see 360 degrees and you transcend your subjective kind of background. And, and that's why when you would speak in the enlightenment language of science and reason and rationality, you wouldn't use I. You would just, because at that point, you're supposed to be speaking from the perspective of 
of a god. I mean, the perspective of like <laughs> an omnipresent, uh, omniscient kind of god. It's it's an incredibly. I mean, I understand to to a large extent why the kind of the postmodernists and the various kind of the critiques of this were like, you know, who the hell do you think you are speaking for everybody? Like, you're not speaking for everybody. Like, speak for yourself. And so, of course, they get like really obsessed with like perspectivism and, you know, obsessed with like, you know, who are you, right? Be be clear about who you're actually, uh, what your influences are and stuff. I mean, of course, they, they went way too far That's it. with that. But I get it. I mean, you should actually speak from the from your grounded experience as who you are right and like not try and act as if you're you're talking in this this voice from nowhere right yeah i recruited a sample of this many people from these populations yeah what why is it subjective it isn't it's just the order of the words in the sentence <laughs> you know it's literally what it is who cares if I start with I or I say people from these populations were, you know, recruited. It's the same shit. It's just a trick. It's mm-hmm. like you're talking, you're talking about the preacher, right? The fake preacher who scams people. It's a scam. You're, you're equally as objective and subjective. You're just phrasing things differently. Just because you change the language doesn't mean that you did things in a more objective or subjective manner. It's, it means you wrote it that way. And then it shouldn't really matter because it's just the form that it's delivered in. It matters whether the information is logically consistent, whether you did that and you start sentences with I or you write in the passive is really immaterial as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, I, I totally, I totally agree. So how are you, I mean, what is your sort of, uh, your business model with this sort of virtual reality uh, and, and I mean, for you, you're going to have such a massive market because the the true crime market is just massive. I mean, you look in like in any bookstore, it's it's a huge section in any bookstore. If you look at Netflix and Crave and Amazon Prime, like you look at the kind of the shows and the movies that that people are watching. There's a huge demand for this kind of stuff. People just, I think, generally speaking, have a, a real interest in this kind of stuff, right? So, I mean, you, you've got to, you know, you're not teaching something obscure that nobody's interested in, but how do you plan on kind of like funding this and making a living? I mean, you got to pay the rent, right? Like, so. Yep, exactly. And so I'm in talks with an attorney right now who's really into it. And he's looking for investors. If anyone is out there listening who wants to invest, get in touch with me. I'll put you in touch with him. And so we're getting some money up front. And what we're doing first is a series of six lectures uh, just to see how people like it, just iron out the kinks and see how many people show up. And then when we put them on YouTube, what is the response to them? Because we're able to do that too. So now might be a good time for me to do my plug, John, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah, shoot, shoot. Yeah. So it's going to be on sansar.com, S A N S A R.com. That's completely free. Just go there and download it, make an account, spend as much time on an avatar as you want, and then you're in. I would say you probably want to familiarize yourself with Sansar before you come in to see the lectures. So maybe try this 24 hours 
beforehand if you can. You also can't do it on a Mac. You need a PC and you need a pretty dope one. You can look up those specs online and you need an even more dope PC if you're going to use VR. Now, with that out of the way, so you can go and look up what those specs are. On October the 9th, I'm okay. All, first of all, all dates 3 30 Pacific time, 6 30 Eastern time. Okay. October 9th, Homicide 101, the basics. October 11th, Psychopathy and Psychosis. October 14th, A Motive for Murder. October 16th, MO and Signature. That's one of my favorites. October 18th, Fetishes and Paraphilia. You know you're going to have fun with that. And October 21st, we get really dark with sexual sadism. And then the trial run's done, and we'll see what people's feedback is. And in the meantime, I continue to look into getting investors and hopefully some other people interested in teaching in this environment and also attending. Okay, so if if I want to attend these things, like, does it... Does it happen? I'm just thinking like just like practically like, you know, I, I teach classes at John Abbott College and they happen at a particular time. So on those dates, it's happening at exactly those times. So you have to be kind of in virtual yep. reality at those times. Right. Yeah, that's if you want it live, right? If okay. you want to put on your VR headset and attend live, yeah, you do have to be in at those times. But if you want to catch the lectures later, not in virtual reality, but just watch them on YouTube, we're going to upload them on there as well. So, And there's also the possibility that I can have them playing in virtual reality. So you can come in virtual reality and watch them on a TV in virtual reality. Wow. That yeah. that's gonna be just absolutely well for any of our listeners. If you're uh, if you're going to you know attend these, I will be there because <laughs> I I awesome. just find I'm just so I'm interested. Well, partially because I I find you very interesting and I love listening to you talk about stuff that you know about. Uh, but also just as a, as an educator, I'm sort of it's like professional curiosity it's like almost like industrial espionage i want to see like (laughs) i want to see like what the what the competition is cooking up because i don't know yeah i I don't know how we're gonna compete with this i mean this is (laughs) you don't have to you don't have to you're my friend when (laughs) when i win you can join just keep being nice to me well i mean i think definitely i don't know about the rest of the world but i think definitely in uh, in the united states which is i you know, we have listeners all over the world, uh, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, Germany, States, Canada, Mexico, all over. But I'd say probably the bulk of our um, our listeners are in the United States. And in the United States, the education system has just become so bloated and expensive and it's you know, it's it's a bubble, you know, that's gonna that's gonna pop. And so it's it's going to be very interesting to see what happens, what sort of Phoenix rise out of, rises out of the ashes. Right. And, um, I think what you're doing is I think probably one of the things that's going to take over because it's just, it's so much, um, cheaper, right? If you imagine like for a course, like, like what would you imagine just off the top of your head? I mean, I, I'm not going to hold you to this, but like, what yeah. would you imagine a course like this, um, would be like a good cost for something like this? I think that it's likely that somebody finishes our program, like our entire program, once we get to that level, 
and aren't even five figures in debt. I think that's possible. If they are five figures in debt, it's the low end. You're certainly not three figures in debt. That's obnoxious. That's a disgrace. You shouldn't burden any young person or any person starting out their career with that. So ethically, we're not doing that. But I would think that you could probably, I don't know, just off the top of my head, take the course for a few hundred bucks. But I keep in mind, keep in mind too, you save on your living expenses because you don't have to relocate if you don't want to. And, you know, you don't, you can just learn from your own home and you can at the same time attend, uh, easily. You don't have to worry about getting there. Bus is not working, figure things out. You just put on your headset, you jump on in. So there's a hell of a lot of convenience. And furthermore, you're going to get a better quality of education for a cheaper cost because it's cheaper for me to do it once again i don't have to go through all this shit either i can just put on my headset but then does that mean that you're not going anywhere no you're going to be going back in time you're going to be going across the globe you're going to have a type of education that is simply not possible for a traditional institution to give you and it's going to be for less so what that number is right now just you asked me yeah i'd say you could probably pay um a few hundred bucks for you know, maybe a 10, 10 session course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it seems fantastic. And then also, you know, in something like this, if you had, even if you had like, you know, let's say like a dozen people show up for one of these classes, you could go so far, like you could go so deep with them. Like you could achieve so much in a short amount of time with a couple of people. And then, you know, also there's people are living longer and longer. People are, there's a lot of like retired people who are spending decades. Um, basically maybe they've got like health problems and things like that. And so they're, yep. they have mobility issues and, and they, but their minds, their minds are still really lively and they're curious and they want to learn about stuff. And I mean, this is basically uh, Facebook for instance, has been expanding dramatically right now with retired people right and mm. it's uh, and it's actually it's really interesting because uh, a lot of the original studies of social media were done looking at younger people and there they found that you know some of them were not very good for people's mental health and like for instance instagram is like uh, really bad for mental health in general but especially for women apparently young women uh, and Twitter's not that great, um, but all these different ones. But Facebook for retired people is actually like really good for mm-hmm. people that are like that have mobility issues and are at home because it allows them to stay in touch with with old friends, to make new friends, to keep in touch with their f- extended family, see pictures of the kids and grandkids and all that stuff, and to kind of be more as opposed to just being at home watching TV all the time, which is like almost being in, in solitary confinement in prison. It like yeah. messes with your mental health big and it causes cognitive impairment and all this stuff. So if people like that could join your university and mm-hmm. kind of take these classes in virtual reality where they can, I mean, it might be just a total game changer in terms of like 
keeping people's minds real limber and also mm -hmm. creating community. Yeah, I, I just think this would be like a very, very beautiful thing. Do you see any sort of potential, I mean, like, you know, Black Mirror, like, wow, this is what could go wrong. <laughs> like, do you see any, like, potential problems with with this technology and this format? Yeah, sure. I think that virtual reality generally, yeah, there's a lot of dangers, just like there is in any medium, but specifically to do with my school that I'm making or the way that I'm doing it, no, it would be probably no more or less dangerous anyway. Uh, but if we're talking about VR, VR more generally, yeah, sure. I mean, I'll tell you this, the first time I took off my VR headset, actually my first two times I took off my VR headset, I'd only been in for about half an hour. And you know that feeling like when you're coming down from a psychedelic drug where yeah, things are slowly absolutely. coming back to reality? Yeah. I, fe I felt that. And the second time I felt that for a good hour and a half to the point where I met my buddy. This was actually in LA that this happened. So I, I left where I'd been in VR and I went, okay, have some oysters, have some wine, have a nice little meal. My buddy's going to show up. Just calm down. You'll come down. And then my buddy shows up. He's like, dude, are you on drugs? I'm like, no. <laughs> He's like, you look like you're on Coke. I'm like, but I feel like I'm on acid. But so yeah, I think it could mess with people who have say like, um, predisposition to schizophrenia or something like that. But I don't think there's any research papers to show that that is just my own opinion. Yeah. Uh, I, I also have been really thinking about layers of reality sort of in a Baudrillard type of sense. And so I coined this term, which applies, I think to the 21st century and I'm hoping to write a book on it. It's called epistemosis. And it's the inability to determine what is real and what isn't because not because there's something wrong with your mind. It's because everything around you is false or almost everything around you is false or you can't measure how like one fact claim against another in with any sort of like reasonably you can't be expected to do that. So you could talk about how the modern media is like that. But in terms of virtual reality, I think that you can have what you would call epistemotic accidents so I had one when I first got my VR headset, I jump in and this one particular night, there was no one around to talk to. And there's a level like go kill zombies. I'm like, yeah, sure. Cool. <laughs> right. So I get in there and I'm walking around this foggy village and I see a baseball bat, bat. I pick it up and I'm like, all right, I'm walking along. There's a zombie. I come up right behind it. And because it's because I'm an idiot and like, I have to feel that I'm into it. I, I know that I could have just gone up and tapped the zombie on the head and it would have had the same effect, but I just like wing back and smack like full force down on the zombie's head. And my hand leaves the safety play area. I'm moving way too fast to compute. Like, no, stop. My hand just smashes into my wall. I'm like, oh, oh fuck God. man. Yeah. My, and, and this is not, um, this is not an uncommon thing. I actually, I was playing a, another game. This was actually just on PlayStation. And uh, I had guys come up the stairs and I was shooting at them. And then I was like, I have to strafe to the right. But because my eyes and mind were in virtual reality and my body was in reality reality, I'm in a combat situation. I just react. I react to the virtual reality and the physical reality. I go smashing into Dr. Oren Amate's wall. And all his kids' <laughs> toys fall on top of me. So I think there's certainly the chances for these epistemotic accidents. But 
that's sort of at first, you know, I think that's, uh, when you're learning to adjust, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty good now. I haven't been having any of those and I've, I've had VR for probably about two months. Yeah. I, I wonder how much of that is a function of VR or just a function of kind of your brain adjusting to a new technology, right? Because I, I know that, um, uh, I've heard all these accounts of when people first started going to movies, like in a movie theater, that people would walk out of the movie theaters and they would be so completely disoriented after mm-hmm. watching a movie that they would fall down the stairs. Like they, yep. they would be just totally like having a really difficult time readjusting to reality. And But because, you know, they got used to it and... You know, and then people like like us, like we grew up with it. It mm-hmm. we don't see it as being a problem at all, right? And then yeah, when yeah, people that's... got used to when people got used to like, you know, I think you know, and my my son Tristan, when he was growing up, he had really bad motion sickness. He would get car sick like all the time. Would be like you know throwing up, nauseous for hours after a car ride. He couldn't go on rides at the at. Laronde at the amusement park, he would get. He flies planes now. He's 17 years old. He's got his pilot's license. He does like, you know, upside down, flies around like in planes by himself. Um, And he he just got, I asked him, how'd you do that? He goes, you just get used to the technology. Like your brain and your body just get used to a, a very different experience and they adapt, right? So I wonder if what you're talking about is just sort of the human organism like adapting to this new to this new technology to this new thing right yeah very well could be i mean i had 37 years of living before i tried this extremely immersive and groundbreaking new type of media uh had i have had it as long as i had televisions which was my entire life maybe you're right i wouldn't have felt any sort of effect like that that'll be interesting to see i guess now we can start testing on the little tykes so if you've got a baby <laughs> strap that headset to him and uh let's see if it breaks him yeah well i'm, I'm 45 and i have um, i've never tried virtual reality so now but i really want to now just to see like what you're talking about right it's uh yeah it's yeah right. you've got to come into sansar specifically s-a-n-s-a-r because most virtual reality stuff is just games. But Sansar looks as good as, say, like a PS4 game. Okay. But you can, you go in there to socialize and meet people and you make friends. Like, as far as I'm concerned, they're pretty close to like real life friends. You know, I can see that. And they can become your real life friends. It all depends on how much anonymity you want to have. But I would love for you to come in Sansar just so I can show you around. I can give you a tour. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So how much does it cost to get like a like a headset to do this? Well, the computer's the pain in the ass. You need a high-end gaming PC. Now, maybe one of your sons already has that. Yes, but one of them does. Yeah. It, okay, so he'll be able to look at the specs uh, for you. I've got the kind of deluxe VR headset because for me, this is an, an investment. I got the Oculus Rift S, and that was about 575 bucks. Okay. But you can get uh, cheaper models of it. I don't have them all memorized, but I was going for like something more higher end. But I think you can get some of them for like 
within, you know, $300, $400 range. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to get one and I'm going to come to your your classes. I'm really looking forward to it. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Is there uh, anything else you want to tell our listeners about what you're working on and what's going on with you or anything like that? Oh, yeah. I got a TV show in the works. And it's going to be, yeah, it's, you know, not all done yet. If anyone knows anything about TV, until it's actually on the TV, nothing is a safe bet. Mm -hmm. But I've I've never been closer. I'm working with a major media company. I love the show concept. I love my co-stars and apparently networks are particularly interested in this so if it was ever going to happen it's going to happen now and then also i've just got my podcast murder was the case and i'm put i'm taking all my chips johnny faithful and i'm pushing them all onto this entrepreneurial square you know it's Mm -hmm. like live free or die kind of thing right i'm choosing freedom over safety and i hope it pans out but you know at the end of the day even if it doesn't it's like the struggle is exciting yeah no i I, absolutely absolutely well i i applaud this and i i will support you in any possible way that i can it sounds very exciting so thank you very much for coming on the podcast always a pleasure my friend and we did it sober this time i know it's so strange (laughs) 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 all right (laughs) will you respect me in the morning (laughs) like (laughs) <laughs> All right. Take care. Later, buddy. Bye. Bye.